I'd like to talk tonight about gratification, danger, and escape. Um, this is actually uh, something the Buddha spoke about um, specifically. He said, Before my enlightenment, while I was still a bodhisattva, it occurred to me, what is the gratification in the world? What is the danger in the world? What is the escape from the world? Then it occurred to me, whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification in the world. That the world is impermanent, bound up with suffering and subject, subject to change, this is the danger in the world. The removal and abandoning of desire and lust for the world, this is the escape from the world. He then goes on to say, So long as I did not directly know as they really are the gratification in the world as gratification, its danger as danger, and the escape from the world as escape, I did not claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment. So, apparently this was important to the Buddha. (laughs) As he said, if he didn't understand this, he wouldn't be able to be enlightened. Um, So I want to go through these three aspects of experience and um, talk about uh, about each of them and particularly uh, focus on the third one, um, the escape, (laughs) since that's what we're all here for. one sense or another. Um, in other um, suttas, the Buddha talks about the different f- forms of pleasure, and there, there isn't. It isn't. He doesn't condemn pleasure, you know, um, which is important to recognize, you know, because sometimes we can get into this sort of puritanical view of spirituality that. Uh, you know, we're not supposed to enjoy it. If we're, if we're meditating with a grimace on our face, we must be doing it right, you know, working really hard. Um, you know, he talked about sense pleasure. Uh, and he talked about the pleasure of meditation or deep concentration states. And he said that there's sort of a hierarchy of pleasure. There's sense pleasure is kind of the lowest form of pleasure, the least gratifying, you could say. And then meditative pleasure is on a higher higher plane, but limited as well. And then finally the pleasure of insight or the pleasure of nirvana. This is the, the, the really good stuff that we're after. Um, and the only one that he really recommends highly. Um, you know, our culture is so pleasure-oriented, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's somewhat, I could say human nature, but I think it's just l- the nature of life to crave after that which is pleasant and try to move away from that which is unpleasant. You know, human beings just have gotten really good at it, you know, and, uh, you know, our uh, well-developed brain and our opposable thumb have given us these abilities to um, create a lot of pleasures, you know, and the Buddha actually talks about how, 
um, how that the, the basic craving for pleasure is what underlies the whole development of culture or civilization and, and an economy in some sense. So, um, you know, this is what advertising feeds on, right? I mean, we all know this, but it's still very alluring when that beautiful car comes on and the you know, HD, you know, really high, just or the, that iPod just keeps getting smaller and smaller, you know. Um, there's this uh, you know, instinct, which is fundamentally a survival instinct. I mean, the, the, the craving for pleasure is essentially a craving to survive, to be alive, right? Because it's, um, it's trying to keep us doing things that perpetuate our existence. Now, what has happened, particularly in human, well, in human culture, I don't think it's happened in the natural world because they're too busy just trying to survive moment to moment. But what happens in human culture is that we sort of have the basic needs taken care of, at least in this county. And, but then there's this energy is still there, this urge, right? And, and so it keeps um, feeding itself. We, it, the culture keeps feeding it and, and it keeps feeding itself. And this is, you know, in some sense a kind of addiction. You know, there was a, a book out uh, the last couple of years, um, a compilation of Buddhist writers called Hooked. And it was about uh, our relationship to consumer culture and, you know, and how it, how it grabs us. And so to go back to what the Buddha said, he said, I underst- until I came to understand this, he talks about the first noble truth in the same way, the truth of suffering, to understand the truth of suffering. So to understand gratification doesn't mean that you just go, oh, there's that. It really means you have to explore it. You know, you don't, doesn't mean, there's a difference between indulging and exploring, of course. Um, but really to look at it and see what, see what happens around pleasure. Um, the, as I've thought about desire and how it works, um, it seems to me that the energy of desire is telling me that there's something out there that's going to fix me. And once I get that, I will have arrived. And this word gratification, I'll be gratified, I'll be able, ah, now I can stop, right? Once I get that car or that relationship or that job or that just meal, you know, uh, then I'll be okay. Um, There's some amazing uh, similes the Buddha gives, but one of the most uh, intense is a, Simile of a leper describes a leper using fire to cauterize his wounds. Uh, kind of an unpleasant thing to imagine, but uh, I think in the time of the Buddha there were a lot more lepers. And he says, he describes the leper getting medical treatment. And if, if, the, if the leper was treated and recovered from leprosy, then he would recoil from the fire. 
It would, it would no longer be pleasurable for him. So this was his um, simile for someone who has tasted nirvana or tasted freedom, that once you've seen the pleasure of, of really letting go, of escape, then the sensual pleasures really don't have any kind of a, a pull on you. Um, and I think this is kind of what the monastic life is largely uh, based on. Um, now again, it's important not to dismiss pleasure then and say that you know, I should be miserable because misery does not breed freedom either. Um, you know, it's just another side, just aversion. Um, you know, James Barras, one of the Spirit Rock teachers, uh, does workshops on awakening joy and cultivating joy in our lives. This is really, really important because actually you can't become concentrated if you aren't relatively happy. If your mind is disturbed and you know, depressed or anxious or full of negative thoughts and feelings, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna get to any place of insight. You're gonna be so caught up in that. So we have to find a balance. We have to find a way to bring joy into our lives and to do it in a way that's careful, that's balanced. And this is of course the Buddha talks about the middle way. Um, and it's the middle way means that we're we're balancing between letting go and not really letting go, but between uh, asceticism and just as a solution and pleasure as a solution. That we need to have a little of both, and in any given moment, uh, we have to really be aware of what we need. You know, there's sometimes what we really need to do is do some letting go, right? It's like, whew, I just need to cool out, you know, get away from the media, maybe go on a retreat or just do some sitting. There's other times when we really need something to lift us up. I, I uh, really like comedy movies. And that's, I will watch comedy, a movie that's a comedy just because it lifts me up, you know, and there are times when you really need that. And... Um, you know, sometimes you sit down to meditate and if there's too much negative stuff in your mind, it really, it isn't productive. Um, so just to be aware of that, to have that kind of awareness of what, what's appropriate, what's needed. And I think that's an important part of practice. Um, you know, the, the Buddha doesn't really say what exactly the middle way means. I mean, he gives these aspects of it. But it's like the... A student who asked Ajahn Chah, well, how come you say one thing to one person and then you say the opposite to another person? You know, and I'm sure all of you have heard Jack's talks. I've heard this before, you know, that, well, if, a, if I see someone walking down the road and they're, you know, a blind person walking down the road falling into the ditch on the right, I say, go to the left, go to the left. And if someone's falling into the ditch on the left, I go to the right, go to the right. Well, it's just because of what's appropriate in, under those circumstances. This is one, really one of the challenges of practice, and this is what makes this practice, and, and I really feel this tradition, and when I say this tradition, I actually mean the Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein tradition. Um, if you've read that uh, recent um, Spirit Rock newsletter, Jack's article about, about how Spirit Rock came about is really inspiring to me, and, and um, I just really honor that tremendously. 
But what's difficult about it is that there isn't this one answer that's given. And this is the difference between this type of tradition and a fundamentalist tradition. You know, in a fundamentalist tradition, you're told, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. Do this and don't do that. But, you know, in a, in a wisdom tradition, I, you know, I would say um, that it's more on us to see what's a skillful thing to do in a given moment. And it's not always so clear-cut as we know. You know if it were... Uh, it, things would be simple, but really that's a kind of magical thinking. And we'd all love to have that delivered to us. You know, someone, you wake up in the morning and someone just say, this is what you need to do today and then everything will be okay. You know, it's a, like, a, I, I want daddy to take care of me. You know, I want God to fix it for me. Or, you know, some kind of uh, magic. And uh, there isn't any. You know, the magic is to learn to be present as much as you can, and as awake as you can be. And then, the clarity of understanding what needs to be done comes, comes naturally, because the wisdom, the daddy, the God, is in you. You don't have to go out there and look for it. Let me talk a little bit about danger. Um, so as in that sutta, the Buddha talked about the dangers of sensual pleasure. Um, I think a lot of times maybe a, a slightly uh, softer word like the shortcomings or the pitfalls is um, maybe more helpful. Um, although sometimes there are distinct dangers um, in, in uh, sensual pleasures, as I discovered, uh, and that's why I... I had to get sober 20 years ago. Um, but the Buddha first talks about, and we hear about this a lot at Spirit Rock, impermanence. You know, you, that meal, that car, that relationship, it just won't stay one way. You know, your stomach won't stay full. The gas tank won't stay full. Your partner keeps changing. You know, if not in any other way, they age which is shocking to see that happen. That's, I feel very sorry for that, my partner. She has to go through that. Um, not that I've looked in the mirror lately. but uh, So there's this inherent aspect of sensual pleasure that there just is no end to the, to the craving. Um, there's no satisfaction. And this is the... Um, one of the definitions of dukkha, the second aspect of, of the danger. Dukkha, or usually translated as suffering, is also translated as unsatisfactoriness, or unsatisfactory. Unsatisfactory, that means that it's never going to satisfy you. There's a moment of pleasure and a sense of satisfaction, but that word satisfaction implies a form of stasis, you know, of stillness, of solidness, which doesn't exist in this uh, conditioned world, in the world of things, or thoughts, or feelings. So 
so the, the Buddha says, you know, I've got to really understand this. And this is um, where a lot of our practice focuses, doesn't it? On, on seeing the danger. Uh, when we talk about the five hindrances, desire and aversion, sleepiness, uh, restlessness, doubt, um, or just whatever is happening, usually when we sit down to practice, whatever comes up, very often we see this is the problem with it, right? It's impermanent, we can't hang on to it, or it's causing us suffering, or both, all of the above. Um, So what we're doing in this practice, to a great extent, is becoming more sensitive to this. Um, The Buddha has some great... um, Similes, this, these aren't so much similes, they're descriptions of, of life. Um, a piece where he starts by talking about how difficult work is. And in the, the, the kind of work he's describing in those days was really, really difficult. Um, how hard it is to work and then how frustrating it is if you don't get paid enough. And if you do get paid, how, then you worry about the king taking your money, which is, would be taxes, right? or thieves, or a fire, or floods, or if you live in the Bay Area, earthquakes. You got your earthquake insurance? Hang on to that. Um, and then he describes how people fight over possessions. And, um, and then wars break out over greed, right? Does that ring true at all? Anybody heard about the oil? Um, and the craving for power, and all of this, how, how um, all of this comes out of this basic just craving, this basic craving for gratification of some kind. You know, the, uh, the craving for power right, is, is one of the great destructive forms of, of craving. Um, but none of it we never arrive. We never get there. We're never done. Um, and Buddha talks about the danger of views, of clinging to one idea, one viewpoint. Uh, again, I, I'm a little bit tough these days on, um, on fundamentalism. I mean, I, there's fundamentalist Buddhists too that I don't, uh, appreciate uh, so I don't want to you know, think I'm picking on any religion, but because there's fundamentalist twelve steppers too that I run to, into, uh, who will tell me you know if you don't if you do this you'll drink or if you don't do that you, you know you you have to do this or you won't stay sober. Well, that's just magical thinking, you know. If I don't drink, I'll stay sober. You know, that's <laughs> the rest of it is optional. Now, that might be a good tool you're suggesting, but please don't tell me that, you know, it's, it, if it were that simple, that'd be great, because then everybody would stay sober, right? They'd just do the magical thing. Um, but we, we cling on to an idea, you know, and with inflexibility, we, 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 um, because things are always changing, we, we miss the point, you know? Uh, it's really interesting to see how a word, words like liberal and conservative 
you know, people have changed what they what they mean uh, or how they function, you know, they, and they just don't make any sense anymore. But people cling on to a name or a word, that's what I am. But even though they're not really doing what that word says you do, like to conserve, for instance, um, or to be liberal. Um, so the, the specific uh, views that the Buddha... Uh, warns us about, he talks about wrong views, right? One of them is basically about karma, denying that there is such a thing as karma, cause and effect. Um, and we do this in subtle ways, and this is again more magical thinking. You know? uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm a baseball fan, and I, I notice the way pitchers, when they come off the field, they always jump over the baseline because they're afraid that if they step on the baseline, it's going to be bad luck. That's just wrong view. I'm sorry. You know. It's really not going to help because um, there's just no cause and effect there. You know, stepping on the line doesn't affect the next guy who comes up to bat. As you know, that's that's not going to affect him. Um, he, the Buddha talks about um, biased or one-sided interpretations of reality, and there's a famous. Uh, metaphor of the blind man and the elephant, you know, the different blind men go and touch an elephant and try to figure out what it looks like, and they each come back and describe a different part, oh, it's like a pillar because they touch the leg, or it's like a hose, they touch, the, you know, it's, it's like a big uh, rock, you know, and it's just because they have a limited view, right? Well, limited view is pretty much the definition of of the individual existence. We all have a limited view. So to cling to one view and to think that what you're seeing is, is 100% accurate is, is always going to be, uh, in some sense, just wrong. You know, there's always some aspect of mystery. Um, uh, Sam Harris was on, uh, on uh, Al Franken's show this morning. Did anybody hear that? He's got, got that new book, uh, Letters to a Christian Nation, and um, and Al Franken was kind of pushing him about uh, about um, beliefs, and which is you know a lot of what Sam Harris is talking about his book, The End of Faith, which really inspired me a lot. Um, and uh, Sam Harris finally said, "Well, no, you know, no, we can't figure everything out. No science can't figure everything out. We don't know everything." Of course, there's a large amount of stuff that's just a mystery, you know, and that's okay. And recognizing that is wisdom. You know, to think that you know everything or that that you can identify everything and just know what's what's absolutely true—that's not wisdom. That's fear. That comes out of fear. Uh, you know, a fear of the unknown. Well, you know, good luck. You know. Because there's a lot of unknown, like what's going to happen in the next moment. Uh, um, the Buddha talks about um, the danger of the wrong view of eternalism versus annihilationism. <laughs> I love these things. Um, and 
in Buddhism, eternalism means affirming an eternal component to the individual. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. And an eternal ground of the world, such as an all-powerful creator God. And this is something the Buddha said, well, you know, I, I don't find it. I don't see it. Annihilationism denies that there's any survival beyond death. That's another thing the Buddha said. That's wrong view. That there is something that goes beyond death. So one leads to clinging, the belief in uh, this eternal aspect of the individual, and the other to aversion, the idea that life is just, this is it. So with eternalism, there is clinging to union with the divine reality or realization of eternal self. And uh, the Buddha goes on to describe, and this is actually related to the, the higher pleasure of meditation. He talks about how if we cling to our meditation states, that we'll be reborn in <coughs> realms which reflect those states. So if you uh, practice loving-kindness meditation and become attached to that practice rather than using it as a way towards freedom or to letting go, that you'll be reborn in this world of great love, which is, you know, wouldn't be bad, probably better than what we have. And, you know, these worlds in the Buddhist cosmology, and, you know, this is all don't know for... The, most of us, I don't know if any of you have had the experience or remember it, uh, but these, these realms, beings live for very long periods of time, 20,000 eons, whatever, whatever an eon is. And, but eventually, they die, and then they go back down into a lower realm and have to kind of, so that it's all still built on karma. So, you know, it makes me wonder whether people who think there is such a thing as heaven just didn't pay attention long enough. You know, the Buddha was very attentive and, you know, had this experience on the night of his awakening that he describes of going back and seeing many lifetimes that he had had and seeing how they played out and uh, seeing that no matter how long a life lasted, it always was impermanent. Um, so any, any clinging, even clinging to the highest states, is limited in, it, in, its, um, in the possibilities that can come out of that. Well, let me talk about um, the danger, or the, the escape aspect of um, you know, enough of that danger stuff. Let's get out of here. Um, so, really, what this practice is is meant to develop in us is this ability to, quote-unquote, escape. And this doesn't mean escaping as a an aversive action, uh, but escaping the danger of, of samsara, the circle of life that just keeps re- recreating itself, right? I mean, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, there are all these different models for you know, dependent origination and the, 
you know, rebirth, all of that. But we can see this just moment to moment. You know, how we, cre- we recreate ourselves, how we recreate our experience, how we are, in some sense, caught on this wheel. I mean, have you ever noticed yourself having the same thought over and over and over? That is just such a you know, perfect example of the wheel of samsara. I mean, you know, most of us have sort of themes. They maybe don't run through your whole life, but they'll run through, you know, periods of your life, eons of your life. And, uh, you know, if we really explore them, if we really look at them, we see how unpleasant it is. But somehow this habit of thinking just keeps us going. Hobiku Bodhi says, once we see that the objects of our attachment are flawed, beset with hidden dangers, we then realize that the way of escape lies in dropping our attachment to them. And the escape is letting go. And that's what the Eightfold Path is training us to do. The Fourth Noble Truth. Letting go is inherently, or clinging, is inherently unsatisfying. Letting go is satisfying. And the reason that letting go is satisfying is because in the moment of letting go, you've actually let go of that which is impermanent, and you're touching then that which does not change. There's no impermanence to the... the, um, just the letting go itself. Of course, we, our action of letting go may be impermanent, but in that moment, there's no changing of that um, quality. And that's, that's really a taste of nirvana, that simple moment of letting go. And, um, Bodha, um, Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu talks about this as natural nirvana. He says that throughout our day, we let go many times. Often we're not aware of it, but we just move from one situation to another and there's a, le- a little letting go. And that if we didn't do that, he says, we'd get so overwhelmed with stress that it'd be intolerable. He says, we do this quite naturally. And that these are little moments of nirvana and that this is what we really want to cultivate. You know, I find that very um, inspiring and, and <coughs> helpful. Because we usually think of enlightenment as this you know, thing out there. At least I do. You know, this magical moment. Everything will change. You know, I, I, I talk about this in my book, about how, particularly before I got sober, you know, I, I thought that uh, enlightenment was going to mean that I'd have a perfect job and you know, I'd have a perfect relationship, I'd have lots of money. You know. What does that have to do with enlightenment? What was I thinking? Well, that's, that's trying to use spirituality as a drug. Right? It's you know, spiritual materialism. Um, but to see that it's possible that letting go or freedom can happen in any moment. Um, now, I've certainly met and practiced with people who seem to have gone deeper with this and maybe had deeper experiences of this. And so uh, uh, don't want to uh, 
give you the idea that you should just stop your practice now because you've already had nirvana. Um, rather, rather uh, that taste is meant to inspire us to seek uh, the fullness of it. So what's ultimately important, I think, for all of us is to you know, figure out how, how does this letting go happen. Um, I was teaching a workshop here actually last month and um, talking, uh, had people break into small groups and ask them the question, um, what is it that makes it possible for you to let go? You know, how, do you, how do you let go? And is there a way you can cultivate that quality so that you can really, letting go can be more of a regular part of your life? And after the uh, session, one of the people uh, raised her hand and said, well, I realized that when I got sober, and this was a Buddhist 12-step day, she said, when I got sober, before I could get sober, I had to hit this really terrible bottom. And that was the only way I could really let go of my alcoholism, of my drinking. And I, so I don't want to cultivate that. I don't want to keep hitting these terrible bottoms. And I was like, mm, that's in- interesting. <laughs> you, you've given the Dharma teacher a good uh, quiz here. And um, What I saw, and what, what became clear to me in that question, was that what we do in this practice, to some extent, to a large extent really, is to become more and more sensitive so that we hit bottom faster and our bottom is higher. So that as we sit and we notice that a thought is causing suffering, we don't have to go out and act on that thought and live by it for 20 years and destroy our lives. You know, We can go, wow, geez, that's, that's painful. I think I think I'm just going to try to see if I can let go of that. I'm not going to go shoot my boss. You know. Uh, so in some sense, what we're doing here really is sensitizing ourselves, right? As we sit, we do become, you know, mindfulness is a kind of sensitivity development training uh, where we notice sooner and sooner and quicker and quicker when, this, when the suffering arises. And we also get trained and reconditioned to see that letting go brings more pleasure, more gratification, gives the actual only gratification, than pursuing it or clinging. Um, so yeah, we, 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 want to, we want to hit bottom you know, real quick so that we don't have to go further down. We want the bottom to come up rather than us to go down to it. So there are a few ways that the Buddha talks about um, how we can develop this quality of letting go. And they, they are, I'll talk about three ways, and they become more refined. as we t- um, the, the three are progressively more refined. The first one... Uh, is can be called factor substitution. I love these, you know, kind of academic terms that show up in the Dharma, but 
we'll explore them in a less academic way. Uh, factor substitution or replacing with the opposite, which is a little bit more easier to understand. This is kind of a mechanical way of letting go. It's a, where we use our own will to um, to bring about this letting go. And so, factor substitution includes things like uh, following the precepts. So, we make a commitment to not not to kill, not to steal, not to harm others with our sexuality not to lie, harm others with our speech, not to use intoxicants. And instead of acting in harmful ways, we replace that action with a skillful action or a non-action. Um, so this means instead of reacting to our impulse, we go, oh, I'm not going to act on that anger or I'm not going to act on that, that greed. I'm going to follow a precept. I'm going to bring that in instead. Um, the limits, and so this, this improves our karma right away, which then really allows us to deepen in our practice. Um, the limits of this strategy is essentially the limits of our own willpower. Because if the craving becomes too powerful, we're not going to have the strength to to work with it, um, which is why in you know the twelve steps we talk about being powerless, and it's we're talking about not there. There isn't enough willpower. That we need we need more subtle solutions. Um, another uh, practice that's uh, a replacing or factor substitution, and this is often replacing with the opposite. The Brahma Vihara practices, the loving kindness practice. Uh, in the 12-step programs, they talk about pray for the person that you resent. The same thing as doing loving-kindness for the difficult person, if you've ever done that practice. So here, you know, a, a strong feeling of anger comes up, and we start to do loving-kindness for ourselves and for the person. Um, or we do a compassion practice. We see someone who's doing a harmful action, and you know, instead of, you know, as we f- start to feel anger towards them or hatred for them, we see that that's just harming us, we try to bring compassion up. Um, which doesn't mean we don't also do some skillful action that stops them from being harmful. Um, the, one of the first times I saw uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, he, it was shortly after the Rodney King beatings, and, and he was talking about seeing um, that that tape over and over on, on television in, in France where he lives and that, um, you know, of course he felt compassion for this man on the ground as being beaten. You know, how, you know, what a horrendous experience that was. But he said he also felt compassion for these men who were acting out of their rage and their ignorance to beat this person. Partly because to have that much rage means that you are suffering inside yourself. And also because knowing the law of karma, we know that they, they are ultimately harming themselves tremendously as well. So this kind of, I mean, this is a pretty powerful practice uh, uh, to have. I don't know that we're all ready to awaken that kind of compassion today, but at least as a model to see um, that it's possible if we have these um, this understanding 
than to try to awaken that when, when um, we're in those circumstances. Um, we can see that mindfulness itself is another kind of um, replacing. So when the mind starts to wander and you remember, oh, I'm trying to stay present. And we replace the wandering mind with just mindfulness. So this is actually the fundamental tool that we use in this practice, and it's, and it's essentially a, uh, a factor substitution, or replacing with the opposite. Um, and with, with mindfulness practice, it's not so much uh, will as it is remembering. And the, the Pali word sati, which is what's translated in as loving-kindness, has its roots in the word to remember, So um, or memory. You'll see how really mindfulness itself isn't something that's difficult to do in the same way that something like concentration is, takes time to develop. You can be mindful in any moment. You just have to remember to do it. So this is the limit of it. This is the, where the difficulty is with it. So all of these, the precepts, the Brahma-viharas, mindfulness, are forms of, of um, replacing the the dangerous aspects in the mind. Uh, and the, sec- the second um, strategy the Buddha recommends is called suppression. Uh, and when, when you hear this, you sort of think, wait, my, my therapist told me I'm not supposed to suppress my emotions. You know, that's just going to make them worse. Um, but uh, as is fairly common, this word is used differently in, in the Buddhist context. Suppression is talking about um, the, a natural suppression of the passions that happens as we calm the mind, as we calm the heart. So with concentration, with stillness, comes the, the burning emotions are cooled. And we see this in our own practice, right? You sit down, and you may, may be a lot of stuff going on, and you just sit with it for a while, breathe, you know, and after a while, it just starts to dissolve. The mind becomes more focused on the breath. Um, and, you know, of course, in intensive practice, we see this uh, getting very, very deep and profound. Um, in that state, in this state of peacefulness, of calm, of concentration, there's less desire because you are in a, a pleasant state and there's really no need for the mind to be reaching out to something, to, to change it. Which it. When I'm sitting on retreat, I'm, I'm describing a somewhat ideal situation, one of the things that I ask myself when... I've gotten to a place, you know, I've been on retreat for a week or two and the mind seems to be really getting quiet. Why is it? You know, and you can get to this place of, ah, this is just, and you're just so present and it's just delightful. And all of a sudden, and, and the story just starts up again. And, you know, well, if what my mind wants is pleasure, why doesn't it just stick with this pleasure that I'm in? Well, Apparently, it's because the mind is so trained and so habituated. It's called conditioning. The karma is so deeply ingrained to think that even though it's 
going against the sort of natural impulse for pleasure, the mind still will go towards that, that habitual behavior. Which sort of, you know, we can see how that happens with you know, childhood trauma or you know, painful things in the past that we want to drop. Or why do I get into these negative thought patterns so much, even when it's painful? And it's just because we, we get so conditioned to, uh, to think that way. I, uh, my daughter is eight years old, and um, you know, I've been watching her <laughs> for eight years. Um, and she, you know, people talk about their children being their Dharma teacher, and, and um, you know, I also, not only is she a Dharma teacher for me, but she's also, uh, it's like watching uh, the Dharma unfold and watching conditioning unfold. And she, uh, she said the other day, oh, oh no, she had it, oh, it was at school, right? They had a thing at school describing themselves. And, uh, and my daughter has a really good high self-esteem. My, my wife says sometimes she thinks her self-esteem is too high, you know, um, if that's possible. Uh, well, actually, yeah, it's probably possible. I think, thinking of a president who might have that problem. Um, but uh, she, on this thing at school where they were describing themselves for the class was like first day of school and they wrote and they put it and then they put it all up uh, one of the things she said was I'm forgetful I thought huh you know, and, and I know where she got that because uh, um, it's you know she's been uh, chastised for forgetting things on occasion I kind of think that seven and eight year olds probably forget stuff, not because they're forgetful, but because they're seven or eight, you know. But and this is what happens to kids, right? I mean, adults are in their place where adults are, and they, you know, react to the kids. And it's not that they're trying to harm them; it's just that they're seeing, oh, you know, you keep forgetting stuff. Yeah, forget. And the adult is actually forgetting something, which is that the kid is a kid, right? Which uh, is easy to forget, unfortunately. But kind of sad for me. Kind of hated seeing that because I was like... So I actually told her the other day, you know, I don't think you're forgetful. I think that sometimes you just forget stuff. But I don't think you're forgetful, you know. So, and she was like, yeah, you're right. You know, I forgot my sweater at school today. Okay, never, <laughs> never mind then. So the third and most subtle uh, strategy that the Buddha suggests for um, letting go. It's called eradication. Now we're really going to get rid of it. Uh. And this is cutting off the underlying roots of the poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion, and cutting them off with wisdom. Now there's, there's a, a classical teaching on this about how there are ten fetters that each, at each of the four stages of enlightenment, certain fetters are cut, which sounds great. I haven't had that happen quite yet. Um, but I think we can see this in our own experience, in our own practice, how certain things over time will just stop having the same allure. You know, and if we are growing wiser as we are aging, which some of us are, I'm not sure everyone is. Um, I'm, I'm definitely trying. Um, then I think this is actually a natural part of 
of growing, of growing wise, growing old, older and wiser, um, that we start to see that, that there are many things that really were appealing to us at one time, which just don't have the, the sort of, they're not sticky anymore. Um, but, we can, but this is something that we really want to cultivate in practice, is to, and, and this again comes by looking, looking at the danger, seeing the unsatisfactoriness of it, and just practicing letting go. Eventually, letting go just happens. Right? And we have these moments, and it's, it's very uh, inspiring to us you know, when you have that moment of going, wow, that didn't grab me, you know? The ex-wife, the phone call, or the, you know, the, the, the criticism at work, or the, you know, the person cutting you off on the highway, and all of a sudden you go, wow, that didn't get me that time. And that's that eradication. It's not, you didn't have to do anything in that moment to make it happen. It's just that you have developed to that place. Uh, helpful, I think, important to see that as it happens as that growth happens. You know, another thing, and James Barris uh, talks about this and really helped me with this a lot, talking about how it's important when we have these successes in our practice to really acknowledge them, to take, take it on, take on the responsibility for it, appreciate it, appreciate ourselves and appreciate the experience. See, wow, there really is some letting go happening. Mm-hmm. This practice works. You know? This isn't just some mumbo-jumbo or some nice place to get a cookie. You know. it's, it's really... Uh, um, so, uh, this teaching um, is beautiful because it, it takes us through you know, the whole process. And one of the things that I love about the Dharma is that it doesn't deny any aspect of our, of our lives. It doesn't deny that there's suffering. And it also doesn't deny that there's a possibility of freedom. And what's also very gratifying about it is that the Buddha says it's up to us. We don't have to wait for some external force to free us that we can do it in this very moment. And he gives us specific tools to do it. It's so great. You know? It's not like one of those things where you, oh yeah, check it out, go ahead. You know? oh. I mean, my, the first time I tried to learn meditation, it was just somebody said, well, just pay attention to your breath. And I, huh? You know, it just wasn't enough for me. You know, I needed more specifics. That's why I love the Vipassana practice when I came to the very specific practice. Um, so I, I really hope that... Uh, these words were of some value tonight, and um, if not, I hope you will forget them as soon as possible. <laughs> Let go. Uh, so we just have a few minutes left. Um, let's just close with some loving-kindness practice. So settling back into a comfortable meditation posture, Breathing into the heart. And if you can, in this moment, just to have a sense of your own goodness, 
that quality in you which brought you here tonight. The hunger for freedom, for release. This is a gift that we have received through our own actions. The gift of karma. And as you appreciate that in yourself, open your heart to the rest of the people in this room who share something of this same journey with you. Appreciating them. And recognizing that all the beings on this planet hunger for happiness, for freedom. And the Buddha said that everyone wants to be happy. But for some reason, most of us are doing just the opposite of what would bring happiness. So offer to all beings the wisdom to know what will bring freedom, to know what will bring happiness. Offer to them the strength of heart to act on that wisdom. See that your own heart's hunger for freedom is not your own, that it is a universal hunger that you share with all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken to wisdom and joy. Thank you.